This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Emily. And I'm Kyle. And this is the week of January 4th, 2021. This is the last week of episodes hosted by Alex Trebek. Mm, uh, and that's right. In the in, in the uh, intro to Monday's show, Alex gave us a very heartfelt message. Um, mm-hmm. He, of course, thought the episodes would air the week of Christmas, so he was framing it around the holiday season and all of that, which we're not too far removed, so we can still, of course relate to that um but about Mm -hmm. you know being kind to each other and and treating each other well and taking the Mm -hmm. lessons that hopefully we have learned from this yes it was was very poignant i think he alluded to the pandemic Mm -hmm. and i think it's a it's maybe this is for viewers who are not sort of super tuned in with the uh the behind the scenes process um i think this might be week where they really experience that like oh you know they really you know they tape it a while in advance and like alex really thought these were going to be the episodes that aired the week of december 21 through 25 Mm -hmm. so on monday we had teal patterson a lawyer originally from gainesville florida david k a high school english teacher from scottsdale arizona and Braden smith a policy intern from las vegas nevada whose four-day cash winnings Total $97,799. So, Braden is back to try and get that elusive fifth win and lock in that tournament spot. Mm -hmm. And they get the Jeopardy round categories Geographic Etymology, The Movies, Farming USA, December 21, The Literary Character's Occupation, and ABCDEFG. That's all you get. And the correct responses will be comprised of only those letters which you know musicians make do with the just those letters just fine so and we don't complain about it (laughs) in that category we had a triple stumper at the 600 dollar level the clue was budgie abode um and nobody came up with cage presumably because Maybe it wasn't coming to them that Budgie is uh, like a nickname for like a species of like pet bird, mm-hmm. right? I feel like there's a longer name for a Budgie. The the bud, Budrigar? Budri, bud, yeah. Budgarigar? Bud, oh, it's yeah. a parakeet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> parakeet. Yes. Um, yeah. Presumably because Budgie was not a familiar term or not familiar enough not because they didn't know where birds live yeah uh there were a good number of triple stumpers in this round and they left a couple Mm -hmm. on the board uh this was not as clean a game i think as as brayden had the previous week yeah a little bit of a tough game had a couple tough ones this week i thought in the geographic etymology category the 400 dollars level was a triple stumper the name of this ocean is from the greek for bear uh nobody rang in Uh, that's the arctic ocean And I don't know why, but there's this, like, not really meme, but kind of viral post that circles through my Facebook every year or so explaining 
that Arctus is the Greek for bear. So the Arctic is literally there are bears there, and Antarctic is there are not bears there. <laughs> that's that's fun. Mm-hmm. I uh, I appreciate that. Yeah. That's that's reminding me of the uh, kind of brain teaser trivia question that's circulating among my son's second grade friends about how many penguins a polar bear can eat in a day. You know, which of course the the gotcha is that polar bears don't eat penguins. Live, yeah, don't eat penguins. Right. Penguins. I mean, all you have to do is feed it to it, and that's what we find out. Yeah, I guess so. I'm just saying that could be tested in a lab. I'm. That's all I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> Or a zoo. <laughs> Scott and Dark. Or a zoo. <laughs> that happens to be on hard times right now. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Uh, yeah. All right. Daily Double number one is in geographic etymology. <laughs> I abandoned that previous tangent. <laughs> oh, it's staying in. Escape. Escape. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, Daily Double number one is in geographic etymology at the $600 level as the 17th pick. Braden finds this one and makes it a true daily double with 5,200. Uh, David has 4,200 at this point, and Teal is at zero. And Braden gets the clue. Early Spanish settlers gave this South American city a name meaning fair winds, and he correctly responds, Buenos Aires. Yep, yep, yep. So he jumps out to a yeah. big lead. Yes, indeed. At the end of the round, he is in a huge lead with 12,200 to David's 4,800 and Teal's 1,000. And we have the Double Jeopardy categories, Christmas on Broadway, Words About Words, Ologies, Three Namers in American History, Replicas, and How Do You... That's that's the category. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Ologies reminded me of how much I enjoy a podcast called Ologies, so... If anybody's looking for kind of fun, in-depth interviews with scientists about their particular fields of expertise um, geared toward science-interested lay people, that's a good one to look up. That sounds awesome. Um, That how-do-you category, uh, I believe Andy Saunders is who I saw share this, that uh, the writers were probably trying to get the contestants to respond Absolutely. In the form of just saying, felt- how do you then give the answer? Because that is the form of a question. Mm-hmm. Right. But in fact, they, I mean, Braden got three of them. David got one. And they all started with what is. Yeah. Which the contestant coordinators kind of encourage the contestants during the morning briefing to just go ahead and say what is. Mm-hmm. If there's any doubt or if you're, you know, to, it's better to be in the habit and have your syntax sound you know, kind of wacky in a Jeopardy way than to try and get cute or show off. I really would have liked to just see them ask the questions. How do you do the hokey pokey? Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) How do you make a Manhattan? (laughs) Mm -hmm. I felt like that was kind of a missed opportunity. Um, (laughs) Although I certainly understand not wanting to get cute with it. And potentially mess something up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Daily Double number two showed up really early. It's in the three namers in American history category at pick number three. It's at the $1,200 level. David finds it. He is at $6,400. Braden's up at $12,600 and Teal's at $1,000. And he makes it a true daily double, as well he should at that point. Uh, And he gets the clue. In 1871, this inventor began teaching 
instructors of the deaf in the Boston area. He seemed to think about it for a while, but he got around to Alexander Graham Bell, which is the correct response. Mm-hmm. We had a rough miss in the words about words mm-hmm. category at the $2,000 level. The clue there was an eponym is a word derived from a person's name. This is a word for a person from a particular place, like Muscovite. David rang in and said, what is denonym? And Alex said, say it again. And David did say it again. He said denonym. And then he spelled what he thought the answer was, D-E-N-O-N-Y-M. So there was absolutely no doubt he had it wrong. Unfortunately, Teal rang in and got the rebound. It is demonym, not denonym. Yes. Uh, Like democracy or demographics or demagogue. Yes. Hmm. Any reason those particular words are coming to mind this week? Can't, can't, can't think of a possible one. <laughs> no. Or Mm-mm. apparently many. Daily Double number three comes up in the ologies category at the $800 level. It's the 16th pick, and David finds it. He wagers 10000 of his 21200 Braden's at 17400 at this point, and Teal is at 3000 And David gets the clue... Ethnology is a branch of this ology that is closely related to sociology. And he forgets the category. He guesses what are races. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So he's trying to figure out ethnology is the ology of what Mm. rather than what larger discipline is ethnology a subfield of. Uh, The correct answer is anthropology. Yeah. So he drops down quite a bit. That was a rough break. Mm -hmm. Yep, it was. And uh, the rest of the round, he he makes a little bit of a move upward, but so does Braden. Braden maintains his lead. So going into final Jeopardy, Braden is in first at 23,800. David is at 14,800. And Teal is at 5,000. And they get the category literary characters of the 1600s. And the clue is when the title character tells him that a great adventure may win him an island he can govern, he leaves his family. And I know there has already been talk on social media uh, about how just incredibly clunky the writing of that clue is. And mm-hmm. why It's a clunkily written clue. Yeah. And why it's understandable that it's a triple stumper because it's kind of hard to parse what's going on. Mm-hmm. So it was a triple stumper. Teal wagered everything, 5,000, and wrote, who's Robinson Crusoe? That's incorrect. Uh, Robinson Crusoe was later. Um, and the clue it is actually not asking for the title character. It's asking for someone else. Uh, mm-hmm. So that is also part of it. David wagered also everything, 14,800, uh, and also guessed who is Robinson Crusoe. So he drops to zero. And Braden wagered 5,801, a cover bet, and guessed who is Gulliver but the correct response is Sancho Panza. This is talking about mm-hmm. Don Quixote speaking to his rotund manservant. Yeah, I'm I'm a little embarrassed that I didn't get there in time. I understood from the syntax what it was asking for, and literary. There are not that many literary characters of the 1600s. Yeah, um, it's like Shakespeare or D- Don Quixote. <laughs> pretty much, yeah. But I, I struggled with this one. I thought it was a, it was a tough clue, and the writing made it more difficult. Mm-hmm. But Braden wins his fifth game. Mm-hmm. 
So he will be our champion as we go into Tuesday, where we have the contestants Manisha Munchi, an attorney from San Francisco, California, Molly Fisher, a college student from Berkeley, California, and Braden Smith, a policy intern from Las Vegas, Nevada, whose five-day cash winnings now total $115,798. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, condiments, historic happenings, maps, a real prize, adverbs, and her first number one hit. And to me, the big story of this round was the $1,000 level of the adverbs category. Uh, The clue there is this four-letter word is an adverb when found before a number to mean about, as in we had to drive blank 50 miles to get there. Now, they were looking for the word some, Manisha rang in and said, what is a round? And was ruled incorrect. Well, that's uh, that's letters, yeah. definitely incorrect because it's not four letters. Braden rang in and said, what is like? Uh, and was ruled incorrect because they were looking for some. And immediately I was like, no, they've got to they've got to reverse that. <laughs> yeah, they've got like whether you appreciate and approve of the way that like is used in the English language now is irrelevant. Mm-hmm. When someone says, we had to drive like 50 miles to get there, it's a four-letter word being used as an adverb to mean about. Yep. <laughs> and it is unequivocally a correct response to this clue. Yeah. Um, so they did they did reverse it as they went into double jeopardy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As well they should have. Yes, absolutely. Surprised they didn't see that that was a correct response. Daily Double number one is in the a real prize category at the $800 level. Braden finds it. Uh, he is at sixteen hundred. Molly is at negative sixteen hundred, and Manisha is at forty six hundred. She's off to a good lead. Uh, Braden bets it all, and he gets the clue: three hundred thousand euros go to the winner of the LVMH prize for someone under forty in this profession with at least two collections. And Braden does not offer a guess, uh, and the correct response is a fashion designer. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I yeah. also. Did not get to. Yeah. Braden said, oh, that type of collections, mm. which suggests to me that, like me, he was thinking like stamps? stamp collection, art collection, coins. Yeah. That's what I was thinking too. Um, it was like, I don't, yeah, paintings. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, and there was a, at the very last clue of the round, at the 28th clue, um, Manisha was the one who finally got the correct response after Braden and Molly missed. The clue was a newspaper gave Robert Peary $4,000 on condition that he reached this point. And sure enough, in 1909, he wired them that he had. Um, Braden guessed the South Pole and Molly guessed Mount Everest. Um, but Manisha responded the North Pole. Um, and we've talked about that we have. before. Indeed, we it was have. a really it was a fascinating story to research, and all of you listeners would enjoy it a great deal if you haven't listened to that deep dive. Yeah, go check it out. Yeah. I don't remember what title I gave it, but it was a good one. It was a good, yeah, good episode. So at the end of that round, right after that, Braden is at two thousand, Molly's at negative two hundred, and Manisha is at forty eight hundred. And the double jeopardy round categories are colorful science, Norwegians, fictional schools. Oi, it's words from O to Y. Each word will begin with an O and end with Y. Possession is nine-tenths and of the law. Mm-hmm. 
there was a triple stumper at the $800 level of possession is nine-tenths. And oof. Loathe am I to uh, criticize anybody's pop culture knowledge. But uh, where there is no Sogorny Weaver, only Zool. And what a lovely singing voice Zool must have in this 1984 movie. Manisha guessed what is Aliens. Which, I mean, it's Sogorny Weaver, so that's not a terrible guess. But it's Ghostbusters. Yeah. Ghostbusters. Mm-hmm. Where did these stairs yeah. go? They go up. Mm-hmm. We had four clues unrevealed mm-hmm. in this round. I can only assume that under the $400 level of fictional schools was something about Hogwarts. Um, yeah. Or, or Wayside School. Probably. But probably uh, Hogwarts. Hogwarts would be... Probably would be Hogwarts. Good, yeah. That's the one that, where you're like, okay, so it's going to be one about Hogwarts and then four other questions. Yeah. Daily Double number two is the 10th pick, and it's at the $2,000 level of the Of the Law category. Brayden finds it and wagers 2800 which is a true Daily Double. Um, he has exactly half of Manisha's total, um, and Molly's at 200 And he gets the clue, six weeks after the U.S. entered World War One, came the act known by this alliterative phrase, requiring men to register to join the military and he correctly responds what is selective service mm-hmm. yeah but manisha goes on a on a tear yes she does think from that point yeah she knows that magnus carlson is the highest ranked chess player she knows sweet valley high and ender's game mm-hmm. brayden misses and then she gets the four-letter word for an elite boarding school, which is the title of Curtis Sittenfeld's novel about the alt school. It's not Eaton, it's Prep. Mm-hmm. And then she hits the Daily Double. She does. She gets Daily Double number three. It's pick number 15. It's in the fictional schools category. And when she finds it, uh, she's up at 11,600 at this point over Braden's 3,600 and Molly's 200. She wagers 4,000. Uh, and she gets... Chamberlain, Maine's Thomas Ewan Consolidated High School, hosts a memorial prom in this 1974 novel. She guesses at the end of time what is a separate piece, but uh, the correct response is Carrie. Alex says you had to think of all that stuff falling from above, which if you if you don't know the Carrie, then you have no reason to get there uh, that way. Right. I think you had to zoom in on Maine. Yeah. Maine. Uh, yeah. If it's Maine, that should, like, ping Stephen King in your mind, if nothing else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't, I didn't get yeah. there, but mm-hmm. when they said Carrie, I was like, oh, um, that makes sense. Yeah. No, I, I got, this was one of the ones that I got immediately and then sort of sat and watched her struggle with it. It was rough. Mm-hmm. Um, it's always gratifying when you, when you, uh, know immediately something that a contestant you know, it, it's, it's working through. Yeah. Um, but I'm sorry it didn't come to her. Mm-hmm. I was also bummed that nobody knew the redshift yeah. in colorful science. That's inter- That was interesting to me. I thought that was a fairly like, common knowledge thing. But. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, redshift is um, it's sort of like the Doppler effect, but for light. The physics of it are really fun. Yeah. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, uh, Manisha is leading with 10,000. Braden has 6,400. Molly has 3,800. And the final Jeopardy category is state name origins. And the clue is, the names of these two states honor a king and his father. 
who was executed in 1649. And uh, this is another kind of misleading wording. Yeah. Molly wagers everything but a dollar and guesses what are Georgia and and she doesn't put a second state. So she drops down to a buck. Braden also has guessed Georgia and and not put a second state. Um, he's wagered 3601, so he drops to 2799. He's looking to get above where Monisha is so that a zero wager or a miss from her, if he's correct, would get him the win. Mm-hmm. And then Manisha wager is 2,900, which is a cover bet and a little bit. She has written what are Georgia and, and then starts to write Alabama. That's incorrect. The correct response here is North and South Carolina. Yeah, as um, Alex points out, they're talking about Charles I and Charles II. Um, mm-hmm. Charles I was beheaded, and then the restoration was following that mm-hmm. yeah so yeah the, i guess it was a it was kind of strangely worded because it doesn't necessarily suggest that both of them were kings right for one <laughs> which they were and yeah it, it was strangely worded yeah i think the wording led me to believe that we were looking for two states named after two separate people mm-hmm. one of whom was a king and the son of the other person who could perhaps also be a king. Yeah. You know, but I was really, like, I was, like, really working for, through, like, Georgia. Like, I was thinking Louisiana. I was, you know, like, Maryland, mm-hmm. Virginia don't work. You know, but I really thought we were looking for two, two distinct names. names. Yeah. Which is understandable. Yeah. Because um, yeah. it's, it's a multi-layered one. You have to first think of, okay, what king was executed in, or, you know, you have to assume it was a king. What king was executed in mm-hmm. 1649? what would his son's name be and then think of the states and remember that carolina is related to charles yeah right Mm -hmm. yeah uh, that was a tough one it was was a tough one but it works out for manisha Mm -hmm. um as uh as she is our champion going into wednesday and it ends Braden's run at five yes indeed he is he is well ensconced on on the uh tournament tracker so he'll be just fine Mm -hmm. uh so on wednesday we get the contestants yoshi hill an executive assistant from colma california jared bloom an anesthesiologist from bellingham washington and manisha munchi an attorney from san francisco california who won seven thousand one hundred dollars and we get the jeopardy round categories all about adam and eve me tv with me in quotation marks your government at work which was beautifully ironic for the day that it aired mm. uh four comma four each correct response is two four letter words inspector and gadget mm-hmm. we only saw the 200 dollars clue in the inspector category I yes felt like uh we got poirot right so i feel like clouseau mm-hmm. would have been in there i feel yep. like perhaps something sherlock holmes related mm-hmm. yeah. maybe yep. maybe even Agreed. harry dresden possibly mm-hmm. We get the first daily double at the $800 level of your government at work, and it's the 18th pick. Jared finds this one and makes it a true daily double with 2800 He is just ahead of the other two. Manisha has 2400 Yoshi has 2600 And he gets the clue, 
In 2020, Charles Q. Brown got this three-word title for the Air Force and is the first African-American general to lead a military branch. And he can't think of anything. He just about runs out of time and starts to say chairman of the, which we know isn't going to work because that's going to be more than three words. Um, The correct response here is chief of staff. Yeah. So he drops to zero, but he's able to recover some before the end of the round. So we finished the round with Manisha at 3,000, Jared at 2,800, Yoshi at 3,400. And we have the double jeopardy categories, peak at the mountains, a plant-based diet, billboard number one song of the year, 19th century America, caveat sculptor, and (laughs) that's so GQ. Uh, Each response will include the letters G and Q in that order. Man, I, I really felt like that was a stretch for a category. Yeah. It, they, they just have to have a G and then a Q somewhere. They don't have to be right, like one right after the other. No, it's just as long as um, there is a G and then later a Q, it's good. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, the clues yes. were fine. I thought the clues were totally like they were good Jeopardy material. It's just as a category. I mm-hmm. was like, Ugh. I mean, I realize, you know. The writers write a lot of categories. Yeah. I am astounded that uh, our contestants didn't ring in to respond to which Billboard number one song of the year had the lyrics, All the Boys They Say Que Soy Buena, and it was from 1996. That is, of course, Macarena. Well, that's um, late 90s, so of course you know it. Yeah, but- no, that's... That's the only pop music I know, so, you know. I did not know the Macarena had lyrics, other than, uh, Macarena. But now that yeah. I think about no, it from a kid, as a kid, of course there were words happening, I just didn't know what the words were. Mm-hmm, yeah. They're not really the point, point I <laughs> <Yeah>. think. <laughs> yeah. The Macarena loomed so large in, like, in my personal experience of the popular music of the 90s. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that mm-hmm. I was like, what? what? Oh, I mean, um, were, did you even live in the 90s if you didn't skate in the, you know, skating rink and do the Macarena at least a dozen times a week? I didn't come here to be attacked like this, It's Kyle. not attacking. I'm, I'm <laughs> sharing this with you. Okay. All right. <laughs> I went to Star yeah, City. No, that's, that, that, was, that was my life. That was my yeah. life, yeah. No, I get it. Um, that was the 90s kid. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, the second daily double uh, is at pick number two. Pick number one was a triple stumper where the correct answer was the Rockies, because it's in Peak at the Mountains. Oof, yeah. And like, come on. Rockies. Yeah. It was pick number two uh, at the $1,600 level in Peak at the Mountains. Jared... Finds it. He is at 2,800. Manisha's at 3,000 and Yoshi's at 3,400. And he wagers 2,000. And he gets a clue. The border between these two countries goes right down the middle of a room in the Hotel Arbez in the Jura Mountains. And he gets that correct with what is France and Switzerland. Which I just started reading Frankenstein, like, earlier this week. Mm -hmm. And uh, Frankenstein, like Victor Frankenstein, the character... Uh, is from a region in the Jura Mountains. I did not remember that. I just I, um, happened to have read that like yesterday, so that stuck in my mind. Yeah, 
I like how you emphasized Victor Frankenstein, the character, so as to like head off the the like the well actually people. Right. Um, yes. <laughs> did you know that yeah. <laughs> Frankenstein is the, the uh, yeah anyway the um <laughs> the scientist, not the monster. Right. Um, anyway, yeah, yeah. Also, that's where we get the term Jurassic for Jurassic mm-hmm. era. Yes, indeed. Common trivia fodder. Daily Double number three is at the $2,000 level of 19th century America. Jared finds this one as the ninth pick and wagers 3,000 of his 8,800. He's found all three in this game. Uh, Manisha has 5,800 at this point. Yoshi has 3,800. And he gets the clue. In 1857, this monthly magazine with an oceanic name was founded in Boston. It moved to D.C. 150 years later. He struggles with this one for a while. He ends up guessing what is field and stream. The correct response here is the Atlantic. Yeah. It it surprised me that that was a $2,000 clue with the, cl- with the clue of an oceanic name in it. Mm-hmm. But he, you know, he missed it. And that means yep. that two of the three Daily Doubles he missed, he lost 5,800 on Daily Doubles in this game. Mm-hmm. Because if he, the Coriat scores, it's 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 shocking. Manisha's Coriat scores at the end of the game is thirteen thousand four hundred. Yoshi's is thirteen thousand eight hundred, and Jared's is thirteen thousand six hundred. Coriat wise, it was a very very tight game. Yeah. And so going into Final Jeopardy, Jared is at eighty two hundred, Manisha's at thirteen thousand four hundred, and Yoshi is at thirteen thousand eight hundred. And they get the category blockbuster movies. And the clue is, released in 2017, this movie is the highest grossing film in the U.S. that's set during World War I. And uh, this ended up being a triple stumper. Jared wagered 5601 to get him up above Yoshi's score. And he guessed, what is 1917? Which uh, came out, I believe, in 2019? Mm, let's see. 2019. 2019. Yeah. 2019. Because it was up in the 2020 uh, awards. Um, yeah. So that is incorrect, uh, and he drops down. Manisha wagered everything, which feels incorrect, except in this particular game. Right. She guessed what is Dunkirk, uh, which is about a World War II event, not World War I. Uh, so she loses everything, goes to zero. And Yoshi wagered only 7,000, which is not a cover bet, granted... You know, when you're only 400 ahead, a cover bet is essentially an all-in. Mm-hmm. But if Manisha and Yoshi had both got it right, that means Manisha would have won. Mm-hmm. But Yoshi also guessed what is 1917, and the correct response is, what is Wonder Woman? That's right. So if you're thinking of um, war movies, you're not going to get there. Right. I think also there's a tendency in trivia circles to pay a lot of attention to, like, critically acclaimed or like artistically significant mm-hmm. movies which are not necessarily the highest grossing no. um yeah looking them up uh wonder woman was over 800 million and the guesses that we saw here were in the like 150 180 million kind of range mm-hmm. you know like oscar bait movies right. often don't actually do that well in the box office right they may do um, fine but they're not going to be a yeah i mean nobody's saying no to 150 million dollars but right. they're not necessarily hugely commercially successful yeah. i thought about wonder woman and then couldn't remember if it was set during world war one or world war two but i guess world war one mm-hmm. so on 
Thursday, we have the contestants Tracy Lee, a data scientist from Newark, California, Natalie Craig, a government analyst from Sacramento, California, and Yoshi Hill, an executive assistant from Colma, California, whose one-day cash winnings total $6,800. We have the Jeopardy round categories, hobbies and crafts, body language, slow transportation, literary kings, queens, and jocks. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. All of our contestants were female in this game. That's true. And stereotypically, you would expect them not to do super well in the jocks round. Um, but hey, they crushed it. They had a oh. triple stumper at the $1,000 level and they got all the rest. Yeah. I don't watch golf all that much, but I imagine I watch more golf than the average American. And I've never heard that name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I guess when I say they crushed it, I mean Natalie specifically. Yeah crushed it she got all of them uh and then nobody got the thousand dollar level for people who are inclined to play any kinds of video games uh the queen's category i knew uh all of the answers well i mean the one about cleopatra i just knew uh but the rest of them i knew they are all leaders that have appeared in the civilization games so if you enjoy playing turn-based strategy games and you haven't played Civilization, I strongly suggest you do so, because it'll teach you things without you even realizing. Mm-hmm. I've played a little bit of Civilization in my day. Mm-hmm. A little bit. Mm-hmm. It also did help me in my Jeopardy games when I was on, like, my first game, The Great Mosque of Jenna. The only reason I knew that was because of Civilization. Yeah. Daily Double number one shows up in the Literary Kings category. It is at the $800 level. Tracy finds it. She's in third place at 2200 Yoshi's at 2600 and Natalie's at 3400 And the clue is, as a title character, he's only a prince, but Caspian eventually becomes a king in this fantasy land. And she gets it right with, what is Narnia? You talked about Narnia a, on a deep dive. I, I did. I ended up zooming in on uh, the last book of the series, right. The Last Battle, but we got, a, we got an overview mm-hmm. of those. Yeah. Um, I think Caspian becomes king at the end of Prince Caspian, and he is heavily featured in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Yes. And then he is uh, the aging king at the beginning of the Silver Chair. Yeah. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, uh, Yoshi is in the lead at 6,400, Natalie's at 4,400, and Tracy's at 5,400. And the double Jeopardy round categories are Black Heritage Stamps, Science and Math Groupings, Mythology, Above and Beyond, Television, and Good After Noun. Adjectives that come after the noun. And presumably you enjoyed the mythology category. Oh, yeah, I did. I didn't think it was particularly uh, challenging for a double Jeopardy round. Um, mm-hmm. The $400 clue was Polyphemus is one of these one-eyed giants. That's a cyclops. $800 clue was less mythology and more do you know what volcano is on sicily that's mount etna twelve hundred dollar is do you know who famously killed his father and married his mother yeah that's oedipus uh sixteen hundred is call him hypnos or call him somnus he was the god of this it's like okay well that's sleep because they gave you two different like you know scientific prefixes for things that have to do with sleep uh, the only one that's a little challenging, I imagine, was the $2,000 clue. 
created by Loki, this eight-legged horse carried Odin into battle. Uh, Tracy got that. She knew it right away. That's Slipiner, which is mm-hmm. Odin's horse. And Loki, though characteristically a male god, was the mother of Slipiner uh, hmm. because he was a shapeshifter. And yeah. that particular story is super weird, but basically it comes down to he needs to distract this really powerful horse so he turns himself into a mare in heat and distracts the horse. I vaguely remember that. Yeah. Norse mythology is so full of weird stuff that that's like, oh yeah. Oh, it's not yeah, the weirdest yeah, thing in Norse okay. mythology. It's just a weird thing. Yeah. Um, Neil Gaiman has written a uh, sort of a retelling mm-hmm. of, uh, of much of Norse mythology, which is a good read. Yeah. If anybody is looking to brush up on that in a, in a fun way. I feel like quarks have been chasing me around mm-hmm. uh, and the science and math groupings at the $2,000 level. Strange and charm are two of the six flavors of these subatomic particles. Tracy got that one. That's quarks. Kyle got quarks in our game. I did. In the crossword clues Q category. And then we had quark like the cheese mm-hmm. in Learned League yes, yesterday. So lots of quark. So both of the Daily Doubles come up pretty late in the round. Uh, Daily Double number two is the 23rd pick at the $2,000 level of Above and Beyond. Yoshi finds this one and wagers 4600 of her 12000 Natalie's at 8000 at this point, and Tracy is at 16600 Yoshi gets the clue. The name of this country that stretches along the South China Sea means people beyond China's southern border. And she guesses what is Korea, but the correct response is Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was another one that I thought I was kind of surprised was a $2,000 clue, because really it's just, think of the country on the South China Sea that's south of China. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. I wonder I wonder if she almost, I don't know, I wonder if she overthought it because it seemed perhaps too simple. I don't know. Yeah, could be. Or maybe she just doesn't know her Asian geography as much. Yeah. Daily Double number three comes two clues later. Uh, so Yoshi goes over to the $2,000 clue in Good Afternoon, and that's a triple stumper. No one tries it. So then she goes up to the $1,600 level, and she finds Daily Double number three. The scores are the same as they were, except Yoshi has dropped down 4600 so now she's at 7400 And she wagers 3000 and she gets the clue... From Latin for made flesh, it often comes after the devil. And she kind of shakes her head in the way that says, I should have bet more, because um, she gets it right away with incarnate. Mm-hmm. In one of the interview segments, it was Yoshi, wasn't it, who talked about being really into crosswords? I thought she was really, really strong with all of the um, like wordplay and vocabulary kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Tracy has the lead with 16,600. Yoshi has 12,400. Natalie is at 9,200. And we have the final Jeopardy category, musicals. And the clue is four songs from this 1968 musical made the Billboard Top 10, including one with an astrological theme that was number one for six weeks. Natalie has wagered 9,000, everything but 200. And she correctly responds, what is hair? The Age of Aquarius, of course, is the song uh, with the astrological theme. 
Yoshi has wagered every single dollar she has, which is not strategic. Not, not strategic, but it works out for her because she has she has the correct response with what is hair. Tracy wagers eight thousand two hundred one, which is a cover bet. Um, but she has started but not finished writing what is South Pacific. Mm-hmm. When was South Pacific? That was a little bit, I think, earlier than 68. Yeah, premiered in 1949. Yeah, much earlier than 68. (laughs) Yes. So, yeah, I think my guess, given that she didn't finish writing, is that maybe she worked on this clue for a while and then at the last second wrote something, even though she knew it wasn't an answer she was totally happy with. Sure. But Yoshi is our champion as we go into Friday. And on Friday, January 8th, we have Jim Gilligan, an assistant professor of English education, originally from New York, New York. Cliff Chang, a software engineer manager, originally from Wilmette, Illinois. And Yoshi Hill, an executive assistant from Colma, California, whose two-day cash winnings are now $31,600. And this is... Alex's last game. And the Jeopardy round categories are Artists in Europe, It's the Little Things, Christmas Movies, Wearable Tech, Brooklyn 99, and Bing Pot, B-I-N-G, in quotation marks. And it just so happens that the B-I-N-G will be at the end of all those. Mm-hmm. Is there a, is there a joke there that I'm not getting? A Bing Pot? Yeah. With Brooklyn Nine-Nine? Like a... There is. Yes. Okay. It's, <laughs> uh, it's a combination of bingo and jackpot. Oh, okay. I know that Bing Brooklyn pot. Nine-Nine is a funny show people like. I haven't watched much of it at all. Oh, it's very good. Um, yeah. I'll check it out sometime. It's um, easy to either binge or just like watch one or two of while you're doing something else. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Daily Double number one comes super early. I think Alex says way too early. Mm-hmm. At the second clue, Yoshi starts us off at uh, the $1,000 level of artists in Europe and gets that one. And so she's the one who hits Daily Double number one at the $800 level of that same category. And uh, she has a thousand. A thousand is the maximum. She wagers a thousand and gets the clue. Well established in 1639, he paid the hefty price of 13,000 guilders for a house in Amsterdam that today houses his museum. And she correctly responds to his Rembrandt. Yep, indeed. And she kind of gets out to an early lead, small lead, but maintains maintains a decent lead. Yeah, all um, the way through that first round. Yeah. Christmas movies, of course, would have made more sense if this had aired on, on December Christmas. 25, yeah. as originally slated. We had uh, that Benedict Cumberbatch vo- voiced the Grinch in 2018 at the $200 level. At the $400 level, Alastair Sim is among those who have played this Dickensian man, but unlike Michael Caine, did so without Muppets. That's Scrooge. Jim got that one. We love the Muppet Christmas Carol in my house. I've oh. heard a bit of trivia, although I haven't been able to confirm it, that Michael Caine made an acting decision that he was going to play Scrooge like absolutely straight and not in any way kind of ham it up as it, you know, in a, mm-hmm. in a way that acknowledged that the other characters were Muppets. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
I think that was perfect. Yeah, I I love that. I love the Muppet Christmas Carol. It's, it's so, good. so good. It is very good. At the end of the Jeopardy round, we have Yoshi in the lead with 6,800. Cliff is at 3,200. Jim is at 2,400. And we have the double Jeopardy categories, History of Flight. Dog is my co-pilot. Hit songs of the 1960s. A trip around the library. Six-syllable words. And cross-world clues. These turned out to be geography clues, um, but they provided the number of letters in each word. Mm -hmm. And hey, there was Father Damien at the $1,600 level of that one. Yes, there was. Yes, there was. I happened to talk about that a little bit. Hawaiian Island associated with the sainted Father Damien, seven letters, and that is Molokai. Daily Double number two is at pick number 12. It's in the cross-world clues category. Uh, It's up at the $800 level, though. Yoshi finds it. She is at 10,400. Cliff is at 6,000, and Jim is at 4,000. And she wagers 3,000. And the clue is, it is sandwiched between Queensland and Victoria. Three letters, five letters, and five letters. And she gets that right with what is New South Wales. Mm-hmm. It must have been nice for her to see the uh, cross-world clues category um, because she is a crossword aficionado. Mm-hmm. And she ended up getting three of the five of these. Yeah. Daily Double number three is in the History of Flight category, and Cliff finds that one as the 23rd pick. It's at the $1,200 level. And he makes it a true Daily Double with $8,800. Mm-hmm. Yoshi is at $13,400. Uh, Jim is also at 8,800, and Cliff gets the clue. Also a type of flying marsupial, this non-powered craft was pioneered by Otto Lilienthal and Octave Chanute. I'm totally guessing on those. Uh, Cliff guesses what is a flying squirrel, uh, which was a correct response a day or two prior. So I wonder if that was impacting his thinking. Mm. Yeah. That is not correct. The correct answer here is a glider. Yeah. I was familiar with the non-powered craft, but not with the marsupial. And so I second-guessed myself and glider came to mind. Yeah, I thought, uh, to me, I thought glider was too non-specific Mm-hmm. And I was like, uh, what, are, what are types of gliders? What are things that mm-hmm. do that? But that's all they were looking for. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, so Cliff drops down to zero there, and uh, he tries to get back in the game. But alas, going into Final Jeopardy, he is in the red at negative 400. So he does not get to play. Uh, Yoshi is at 12,200. And Jim, right at the last moment, hopped into the lead at 12,800. And the final Jeopardy category is women and science. The clue is, Dr. Margaret Todd gave science this word for different forms of one basic substance. It's from the Greek for equal and place. Yoshi made what seems like a pretty uh, heads-up bet, wagering zero. Mm -hmm. Now, I think on the previous day, she had... Bet it all? 
she'd made a pretty big bet. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, so I don't know that she was necessarily being strategic uh, so much as just didn't feel confident in the category and so didn't bet anything. Uh, but either way, she wagered zero and she got it correct with what is isotope. Uh, so she remained at 12,200 uh, and Jim also got it correct and he had made a cover bet of 11,601. So he jumps up to $24,401. Mm-hmm. And man, took me a while. I got to isomer and I was like, oh, that must be it. No, isotope. I'm so sorry, everyone. I, I got to isotope, although I got there by way of thinking about thinking about isometric exercises. Mm-hmm. Uh, an isometric exercise is anything where you are engaging a muscle without moving it. So like if you press your palms against each other, um, that is isometrically working your arms and shoulders, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, so that came to me as a the ISO is equal, and then and then I got to isotope pretty easily from there. Mm-hmm. And then the uh, the show closed out with a tribute to Alex. Yeah, yeah, a, a video tribute to um, Alex's years as uh, as Jeopardy host. It was moving. Uh, it was. You can find it on YouTube. Yeah, it was good. It was good. It felt it felt right. You know. And uh, yeah. that's it. There are no more, no more shows with Alex Trebek. Oof. Yeah. Next week we will uh, we will have for the first time in who knows how long a different host of Jeopardy. Uh, mm-hmm. It will be Ken Jennings for I think two or three weeks. Yes. Yeah. And uh, we're not gonna rehash too much of what happened on Twitter, um, but Ken Jennings has gotten himself into some hot water there, but kind of curious to see how Jeopardy handles all of that. But in any case, they've got three weeks of episodes in the can, and they'll they're, they'll be using them. I don't know what they'll do after that. That's up to them. Um, uh, I think Katie Couric is going to be doing some. Am I correct? In oh, that? have they announced? Last time I checked, they hadn't announced. I, th- I thought I saw that name as another one. I could be oh. wrong. Could be wrong. I know All they're right. going to have a, a, a variety. They're planning to have a variety of guest hosts for the rest of the season. Yeah, that's that's what I'd heard them say. And I think they hadn't, uh, last I looked, they hadn't announced who was coming after Ken. Yeah. Um, for a while, speculating about who was going to guest host was a major um, conversation in my circles. Mm-hmm. We're on other topics at this point. Yeah. <laughs> Shockingly, <laughs> there have been some things that have Put gone that on. Put that one on the back burner. Yeah. Yeah. I'm still waiting for them to call me to bring me in to do some shows, but... Yeah. I mean, we know the, the writers listen, so we'll see what pull they have. Yeah. They could, they could bring us both. Maybe we could team <laughs> yeah, tag Yeah, there team we it. go. I think that would be great. <laughs> that um, definitely would not be terrible. It would be terrible. <laughs> <laughs> one clue would come out and I'd be like, I have a funny anecdote about my five-year-old. People no, would be like, we're just here to play Jeopardy, Emily. Please read the next clue. Come on. <laughs> um, yeah. Any not English word that I would have to pronounce, I'd be like, well, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They, they probably shouldn't do that. Um, but it'd still, it, but, it would know. still be nice to be asked. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so that's, yeah, that's it. We're, we are moving on to 
uh, I would say a new era, but really we're we're heading into the transition into a new mm-hmm. era, and that's yes. just how life goes, you know. All things yep. pass. This is the break point in the show. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll mention our our Patreon. It still does exist. Uh, I haven't added anything to it in quite a while, but eventually we'll get there. But it is there, patreon.com slash potentpotables. And also, uh, we've pointed you in the direction of certain social justice movements lately uh, and reminded you to wear your mask, so keep that up. But uh, we all know that there's been an awful lot going on lately. And so if the best thing you can do right now is to just take a break, it's okay to take a break. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's very little that you are adding to the world by doom scrolling right now. So take a break. Be well. It's a stressful time and we care about you. We need you for the long haul. Yes. All right. Deep dive time. Yeah. Are we talking about the Rocky Mountains, Kyle? We are not. I really, I was, I, I was close to picking that one. I I figured you probably were. Are we talking about Wonder Woman? Uh, we are not. I actually don't know very much about Wonder Woman. Okay. What about the Arctic Ocean? We're not talking about the Arctic Ocean either. Oh, I didn't get it. All right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I kind of used up all of the trivia knowledge I had any of like Arctic when I talked about bears. To go back to that, I think the European brown bear, it's scientific. Let me look this up. Yeah. The Ur- or the Eurasian brown bear. Its scientific name is Ursus arctos arctos, which hmm. literally means bear bear bear. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it is the barest of bears. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, no, uh, this is from the Tuesday game in Double Jeopardy. Uh, it is in the uh, colorful science category at the $2,000 level. The sun is a G25 star or this type of dwarf. Manisha had guessed what is a red dwarf. Brayden had guessed what is a white dwarf, but it was a yellow dwarf. Um, mm-hmm. I was kind of surprised that that was a triple stumper. I don't know. I just, I mean, look at it. It's a yellow yeah. star, yeah. <laughs> right? Agreed. And if you know anything about know anything about Superman, right? It's the yellow sun that gives him his powers. Uh, so yeah, it's it's a yellow dwarf. So we're going to be talking about stars. Great. I'm gonna kind of hit some of the scientific stuff not too deep because there's man there's a ton of like stuff that i just don't get you know the way that fusion works and and the astrophysics of everything uh Mm -hmm. so it would be pointless for me to try to enumerate that but uh just kind of fill in some trivia points about stars uh how they're formed you know constellations and uh like the brightest stars in our sky just kind of like filling in trivia points about stars All right. Perfect. That sounds good. So, here we go. A star is an astronomical object. And that's the deep dive. Just kidding. Uh, Consisting of a luminous spheroid of plasma held together by its own gravity. The nearest star to Earth, of course, is the sun. Uh, And many other stars are visible to the naked eye from Earth during the night, appearing as a multitude of fixed luminous points in the sky. Planets, on the other hand are uh, visibly moving. So that is what in ancient times differentiated planets from uh, stars. And the word planet comes from the Greek for wanderer because they just figured it was a star that moved. Uh, The observable universe contains an estimated uh, 10 to the 24th stars. 
which is unfathomable. Uh, but yeah. most are invisible from Earth, including all stars mm. outside of our galaxy, which is, of course, the Milky Way. For most of its active life, a star shines due to thermonuclear fusion of hydrogen into helium in its core, and then releasing that energy. Uh, almost all naturally occurring elements heavier than helium are created by stellar nucleosynthesis during the star's lifetime, and for some stars, by supernova nucleosynthesis when it explodes. Uh, astronomers can determine the mass, age, metallicity, or chemical composition, and many other properties of a star by observing its motion through space, its luminosity, and its spectrum. Uh, so especially spectrum, but luminosity as well, uh, goes into the classifications that I'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, so historically, of course, stars have been important to civilizations throughout the world. They've been used for celestial navigation and orientation. And, of course, before we knew anything about space, people thought that stars were fixed to the heavenly sphere, or whatever they happened to call it. And the oldest accu accurately dated star chart was the result of ancient Egyptian astronomy in 1534 BCE. Uh, the ancient Babylonians compiled star catalogs. Uh, in the late 2nd millennium BCE. And the first star catalog in Greek astronomy was created by Aristilus in approximately 300 BC. Uh, there were others uh, throughout ancient Greece as well. However, Chinese astronomers, in spite of the apparent immutability of the heavens, uh, they were aware that new stars could appear. In 185 AD, or CE, they were the first to observe and write about a supernova, which we now call SN-185. In the year 1006 CE, uh, the brightest stellar event in recorded history, Supernova 1006, was written about by Egyptian astronomer Ali ibn Ridwan, as well as several Chinese astronomers. Uh, so this is just kind of an overview of all ancient cultures who were looking at the stars and, and determining things based on it. We have a lot of Arabic names coming from medieval Islamic astronomers during the Golden Age, what is called the Golden Age of Islam. And they invented numerous astronomical instruments that could help compute the positions of those stars. Uh, they also built the first large observatory research institutes, produced the Book of Fixed Stars, fixed stars in 964 by the Persian astronomer Abd al-Rahman al-Sufi. So that's kind of like the ancient history, and of course, coming up to today, we have better instruments, more knowledge, uh, more ways to experiment, and so we're, we're able to observe things a lot more closely and a lot more uh, accurately. So there are different kinds of like naming conventions and stellar designations that there can be. Um, a lot of them have to do with the constellation that the star is in. Constellation was a, a concept known to exist during the Babylonian period, as well as uh, uh, other you know parts of the world in ancient times. And that ancient Babylonian collection of constellations include 12 that lay along the band of the ecliptic, and they became the uh, basis for astrology. And then many of the prominent individual stars were also given names, particularly uh, with Arab or Latin designations. Uh, like I mentioned before, the planets uh, are called planets because uh, they were thought to be wandering stars uh, and were given names based on Greek or Roman gods or goddesses. Those, of course, being Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. Uh, Uranus and Neptune are also, and of course Pluto, are also Greek and Roman gods, but uh, they were not observed in antiquity. They require telescopes. But the scientists who discovered them continued with that naming convention. 
around 1600, the names of the constellations were used to uh, name the stars in the corresponding regions of the sky, whether they were actually part of the constellation or not. The German astronomer Johann Bayer created a series of star maps and applied Greek letters as designations to the stars in the constellation, which is a convention that we you may not think about, but it makes sense when you hear the names that you recognize of stars. Uh, later, a, later, a numbering system based on the star's right ascension, which is a pretty complicated idea. It is the angular distance of a particular point measured eastward along the celestial equator from the sun at the March equinox to the point in question above the Earth. Anyway, that was created and added to John Flamsteed's star catalog, uh, whereby this numbering system became known as the Flamsteed designation, which is a new band name, I call it. The, and now the only internationally recognized authority for naming celestial bodies is the International Astronomical Union, which I just recently finished reading The Pluto Files by Neil deGrasse Tyson. Uh, if you've never read anything by him, he's very a very good writer, and his stuff is awesome. Uh, but the IAU played a big role in that. Um, there are companies, I guess, um, you know, public service announcement. There are companies that have tried to sell naming rights for stars um but that is all fake and not um <laughs> legitimate and uh, a number of those companies were shut down or sued <laughs> because they were considered fraudulent so hmm. don't don't buy a star for 60 bucks or whatever and think you you're good so stars condense from regions of space of high matter density which are usually known as molecular clouds consist mostly of hydrogen helium, and a few heavier elements. Um, one such example of a star-forming region is the Orion Nebula. So a lot of nebulas are, you know, become these kind of breeding grounds for stars. Most stars form in groups of dozens to hundreds of thousands of stars. Massive stars in these groups may powerfully illuminate those clouds, ionizing the hydrogen uh, and creating what are known as H2 regions. All stars spend the majority of their existence as main-sequence stars, fueled primarily by the nuclear fusion of hydrogen into helium, like I mentioned. Stars with different masses have different properties at various stages in their development. The fate of more massive stars differs from that of lesser massive stars, as do their luminosities and the impact they have on their environment, so astronomers often group stars by mass. Very low-mass stars uh, are fully convective and distribute helium evenly through the whole star, during the main sequence. They never undergo shell burning, never become red giants, and slowly cool. Low-mass stars, which includes the sun, do become red giants as their core hydrogen is depleted and they begin to burn helium in a core helium flash. Uh, and then finally, they blow off their outer shell as a planetary nebula and leave behind the core in the form of a white dwarf. Intermediate-mass stars pass through evolutionary stages similar to low-mass stars, but after a relatively short period as a red giant, they ignite the helium without a flash and spend an extended period in the red clump. Hmm. Which is a, yeah. Good band name? Yeah, another good band name. A lot of good band names here. Uh, bef <laughs> before forming a, a degenerate carbon-oxygen core. And then massive stars. <coughs> degenerate another one. Yeah. Um, after exhausting the hydrogen at their core, uh, they become supergiants and go on to fuse elements heavier than helium. Um, then their cores collapse and they explode as a supernova. Uh, the current stellar classification system originated in the early 20th century when stars were classified from A to Q based on their strength of the hydrogen line, uh, which is a spectral line 
uh, in electromagnetic radiation coming off of the star, created by a change in the energy state of a neutral of neutral hydrogen atoms. And so the strength of that that particular line when you're looking at their uh, radiation spectrum is how they determined it. It was thought that the hydrogen line strength was a simple linear function of temperature, but instead it is actually more complicated. Uh, it, it strengthens with increasing temperature, then peaks near 9,000 Kelvin, and then declines at greater temperatures. So it's not uh, entirely reliable. Uh, by itself. And so the classifications were since reordered by temperature on which the modern scheme is based. Stars are given a single letter classification according to their spectra, ranging from type O, which are very hot, to M, which are so cool that molecules may form in their atmospheres. So the classifications in order of decreasing temperature are surface temperature are O, B, A, F, G, K, and M. And then there are some very rare types that have special classifications. The most common types are L and T, which classify the coldest low-mass stars and brown dwarfs. Each letter has 10 subdivisions, numbered from 0 to 9 in order of decreasing temperature. Uh, the system breaks down at extreme high temperatures, and classes uh, O0 and O1 may not actually exist. Um, so the, the Jeopardy clue, the sun is a G25 star, uh, and so that goes into this classification here. Um, it's in the G range. A G2, so um, on the on the subdivision down there, it's a G2. And then the 5 has to do with um, another aspect that I'll get to right now. In addition, stars may be classified by the luminosity effects uh, found in their spectral lines, um, which correspond to their spatial size, and it is determined by their surface gravity. These range from 0, uh, which are hypergiants, through 3, which are giants, to 5, which are main-sequence dwarfs, and some people add 7, which would be white dwarfs. So... Our sun is a G25. It's in the main sequence. It's a yellow dwarf. Uh, and that's how that is determined. Mm. So uh, most stars are just like one single star by themselves. Uh, we also, however, uh, observe celestial bodies or objects that look like stars that end up not being stars. Um, sometimes it's just a galaxy that to the naked eye appears to be one point of light. Sometimes we get quasi-stellar objects, which are called quasars. Uh, they are extremely luminous, active galactic nuclei uh, in which a supermassive black hole with a mass ranging from millions to billions of times the mass of the sun is surrounded by what's called an accretion disk, which is what gives off the, the light that we see. So that's what a quasar is. And uh, they were first identified using uh, in the 1950s using radio wave uh, like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Detection. Um, cause they give off strong radio signals, mm -hmm. but since we've learned more about them, so those are quasars. So they are not technically stars. They are galaxies, sort of, kind of, they're a black hole with a bunch of stuff going on around them. Um, and then we also have, uh, pulsars, which are a type of star. A highly magnetized rota rotating compact star, usually a neutron star, but could also be a white dwarf, that emits beams of electromagnetic radiation out of its magnetic poles. Uh, so that's why it's a it's called a pulsar because it seems to pulse as it uh, shoots out these uh, electromagnetic radiations uh, at regular rotational periods. We also have binary stars, uh, which is actually a star system of two stars orbiting each other, uh, or maybe you, there might be more than two stars, in which that would just be a multiple star system. 
Uh, they often appear to be a single point of light to us because they're so far away, um, but they are in fact multiple stars all kind of locked into orbit around each other or with each other around a uh, berry center, as it is called. There are a lot of constellations in the sky. They come mostly from uh, ancient uh, thinkers, but the 88 modern constellations was produced for the International Astronomical Union in 1922. Uh, It's based roughly on the traditional Greek constellations listed by Ptolemy. Uh, I'm not going to name all of them, but the ones that we kind of know, they happen, they're they're in there. You know, we have, uh, Mm -hmm. you have Orion, you have Andromeda, you have Aquila, you have all of the Zodiac, you have uh, Hydra, Mm -hmm. Pegasus, you know, all of them. (laughs) There are just so many of them. I don't want to, don't want to go through all of them. And then some of the brightest stars in the sky, or at least to the naked eye, Of course, the sun is number one. That would be weird if it wasn't. Aside from that, the brightest star in the sky is Sirius, which is called the Dog Star. Uh, It is part of the constellation Canis Major. Uh, It's also the uh, abbreviated Alpha Canis Majoris, so it is the primary star in that region of the sky. Then we have the star Canopus, or Canopus. Uh, It's the brightest star in the southern constellation of Carina, and is the second brightest star in the night sky. We also have Rigel Cantaris and Ptolemon. These are part of uh, the star system of Alpha Centauri. Uh, It's the closest planetary system to our solar system at 4.37 light years from the sun. That's not too far. It would only take 150,000 years for a space shuttle to get there. Uh, Then we have Arcturus, and it is in the uh, constellation Bootes, and it is the fourth brightest star in the night sky. It's in the northern hemisphere. Then number six is Vega. It's the brightest star in the constellation Lyra, and it is also Alpha Lyrae. Then we have, at number seven, Capella. It is in the constellation of Auriga, and the third brightest in the northern celestial hemisphere after Arcturus and Vega. There are a bunch more. Like, obviously, there are millions and billions of stars. Uh, But those those are the top brightest ones. After that come the other Rigel, which is in Orion, uh, then Procyon, Akronair, Betelgeuse, Hadar, Altair, Acrux, Aldebaran. Lots of lots of stars. Also, at number 16 is Antares, which um, is in this the constellation Scorpio. And I don't know why this stuck with me. It seems like a trivia thing. Antares means not Aries hmm. because uh, it's a red star and was often confused in ancient times with the planet Mars. So to say it's not Mars, they named it not Mars. And there you go. All right, so that's a bunch of stuff about stars. Obviously, there's a bunch more (laughs) out there, but there you go. Nice. Let's do a quiz. All right, let's do a quiz. Okay, these are all related to stars in some way. All right, here we go. Question one. In the Star Wars universe, the sixth planet of what star system is home to Echo Base? The planet itself shares the name of the star. Oh, no. And if you need a little more, I can give you a little more. Oh. I think I need a little more. This is embarrassing, though. It's where the action begins in the best of the original trilogy, certainly, and possibly the best of all the movies. Oh, no. It's the icy planet and the Empire Strikes Back, but what is it called? 
Uh, it okay. has tauntauns, uh, right? Like <laughs> it, it does, and they will see you. Yeah. In yeah. I don't even know if I, I might be past it. I don't know. I'm not sure I'm going to get it. Hold on. All right. I don't think I have it. What is it? It's Hoth. Oh, it's Hoth. Ah, darn it. Of course it's Hoth. I am appropriately ashamed of myself. Um, but I am proud of you that you knew which movie I was talking about. Yeah. I haven't rewatched the original trilogy since I got to to be adult enough to probably agree with you. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I'm aware of which one most serious Star Wars fans think is the best one. <laughs> um, yeah, it's because George Lucas had the least to do with it. Mm. Anyway, bummer. All right. Bummer. Yeah, that's All a bummer. Right. Question two. Uh, literature. Beyond the Wall of Sleep is a short story in which the narrator meets a very offensively described psychiatric patient from the Catskills. This man has bouts of dissociation where he seems to be taken over by another consciousness, one that the narrator describes as a celestial being, perhaps a star. This being is pursuing the demon star Algol for vengeance over some wrongdoing, but the human vessel dies before we find out if it was successful. Who was the influential, though notably bigoted, American author of this story? Ooh, I do not know. All right, so it's a story. It's called. Be- I've been. I was taking notes because that was a, that was a, a journey. Um, yes. It's called Beyond the Wall of Sleep. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a psychiatric patient who I forgot your exact word, but and then the question is. Uh, the question is, who wrote notably bigoted author? Is that right? Yes. Okay. Um, notably bigoted. My first instinct was to say, like, L. Ron Hubbard or somebody. Uh, L, to say L. Ron Hubbard, but I don't think that you would say notably bigoted for him. I feel like, yes, but that's not the descriptor you would use. I will say that his uh, his blatant racism has come to light because of uh, a recent uh, television series, if that helps. Oh. oh. Are we talking about Lovecraft? We are talking about H.P. Lovecraft. Nice. All right. uh, yeah. Uh, I very much enjoy his stories. Mm. And his writing is pretty good. But of course... Just like I really enjoy the music of Wagner. Right. Like, yes. Like, the thing that was created is good. A lot of it, mm-hmm. the rest is not. Um, anyway, nice. You got 10 points. Yay. Question three. The appropriately named VLA is one of the world's premier astronomical radio observatories, consisting of 27 radio antennas in a Y-shaped configuration on the plains of San Agustin, 50 miles west of Socorro, New Mexico. Each antenna is 25 meters in diameter. The data from the antennas is combined electronically to give the resolution of an antenna 36 kilometers across, with the equivalent sensitivity of a dish 130 meters in diameter. That's a lot of information, but what does VLA stand for? Oh, I don't think I know. 
Is it in English, or am I trying to back out a Spanish acronym here? It's in English. Okay. I just got it. Ha! Ha-ha! I'm a genius, <laughs> I hope. Um, it, do, is it very large antenna? Oh! No. <laughs> uh, uh, so close. It's, it's the very large array. Oh, array! Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. I kind of want to give it to you, though. Because I mean, it's, I'm not gonna stop you. I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. It's like it is a proper noun, and the proper noun is very large array. But I mean, you worked you worked it out. I'll give you the points. Yeah. Nice. All nice. Right. Yes, the very Thanks. large array, which I just I love that name. And uh, there are a number of like there are large arrays and extremely large array. Like there are there are a number of places around the world that have names like that. That's just like well, that's what it is. So mm-hmm. we named it that. <laughs> love it. Yeah. All right, question four. My daughters love Dora the Explorer. Dora has a menagerie of cool companions, one of whom we call Toolstar. When Dora wants us to call for Toolstar, she has us say the Spanish word for star. What is it? It's... I think it's Estrella? It is Estrella. So I'm able to get my daughters to go Estrella. And I'm teaching them Spanish, nice. as Yay. in Dora's teaching them Spanish. Nice. All right, you're up to 30 points. Question five. There's a potential for 13 points here. For one point each, name all 13 zodiac constellations or signs. Oh, goodness gracious. Okay. Capricorn. Um, something. Something. So- something is not correct. No, I, 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 I'm going to come back to those. I remember okay. I, I remember somebody with a January birthday, I think is uh, some January birthdays are Capricorns. Aries. Taurus. I'm going to come back to something here. And then there's Cancer. Leo. And Virgo. Then there's something else, and maybe another one, and then there's Sagittarius. Um, <laughs> two, three, four, five, six, seven. I got seven of them so far. That's true, yeah. Um, so what did I miss? There's also, somewhere in there, there is Gemini. 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 That's a joke for the people who listen every week. Yeah. Um, Aquarius? <laughs> it is dawning. That was a final Jeopardy this week. Yeah. Um, and there's Libra. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I got ten so far. Mm-hmm. And I'm missing some still. Pisces. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're up to 11. I'm up to 11. You turn I might have to 11. call it there. I'm not sure I'm going to think of the others. Okay. Uh, so you, you missed Scorpio. Oh, Scorpio. Um, and then the sort of newly designated 13th Zodiac sign, which was a lot people were talking about a lot a number of years ago and then kind of didn't. Uh, that's Ophiuchus or Ophiuchus. Which is the snake bearer, but it's not one of the original. It's not one of the, like, classic 12. But I included it because 
it's technically acceptable. All right, nice. Yeah, That's eleven sure. points. Yeah, right. Because <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> there's a whole lot of reality in that basis there. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. All right, you are at forty-one points, Woo-hoo. and the final category is ancient symbols. Ancient symbols. I'm not sure I feel great about that category. Maybe I should. I'll wager 35. All right, here it is. The five-pointed star has taken on many meanings throughout the history of the world. In ancient Greece, particularly among the Pythagoreans, the five-pointed star represented the divine perfection. In addition to its mathematical properties, the shape was nearly reflected in the path of a certain planet observed by the Greeks. As such, it became a symbol of what ancient deity? Ooh. All right. A planet observed by the Greeks. So I'm going to assume this was a planet in our solar system. That's a safe assumption. Yeah, because they wouldn't have observed a planet that's not in our solar system. Mercury, Venus, not Earth, surely. Um, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Neptune, Pluto. Those are the planets. I'm just going to cross off. I don't think that one. The five-pointed star. Um, And we're talking about ancient Greeks, so you're probably expecting this deity's Greek name, not their Roman equivalent. You could give the you could give either one. Alright. I'm gonna guess Venus slash Aphrodite. That is a good guess, because that is what it is. Woohoo! Yeah, the planet as it moves across our sky, it, it traces a pattern that is, you know, not precise, but it is essentially it traces a like a five pointed star over the course of a year. Mm-hmm. And because of the the beautiful perfection of the diff of like the ratios and and things you can get within a five pointed star. Oh, um, it is. It's considered. You know, it, it was associated with beauty, and therefore the planet was associated with that shape, which is associated with mm-hmm. Aphrodite. All right. Nice job. All right. Hey, this turned out okay. Yeah, you did well. I was worried there at the beginning when I bombed the Star Wars question. But. <laughs> it happens, you know, it yeah. happens. Cool, cool. 76 yeah. points. Yeah, well, thank you for a great deep dive and of for a fun quiz. Thank you for potting yeah. with me. My pleasure, as always. Um, and thanks, listeners, for spending your time with us. These are troubling times, but glad to be here with you talking about Jeopardy. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It would help us if you would leave a rating and or a review as well, if you wouldn't mind. As we mentioned, you can check out our Patreon. We're at Potent Potables on Patreon. Uh, And if that's not something that is of interest to you, uh, you can still tell your friends about our podcast, especially if they're Jeopardy fans. They can find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Email address is PotentPotablesCast at gmail.com. And our website is PotentPod.com. And we will be back next week for the first week of Ken Jennings-hosted episodes. Mm-hmm. And until then, 
May your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker.